Welcome to Sterile Packaging on Track Radio. This podcast delivers insights on medical device packaging from regulatory affairs, process management, as well as discussions on the latest in sterile device packaging technologies. Each episode, our host, Charlie Webb, speaks with global experts to bring the most relevant information to our esteemed listeners. As sterile packaging compliance becomes increasingly more challenging, it is vital to avoid information gaps that could risk your medical device packaging program. Avoid package failure risks and build your skill set from your colleagues' experience and from insights from sterile device packaging subject matter experts. You're listening to Sterile Packaging on Track Radio, Spot Radio. Hello, everyone. It's me again, Charlie Webb, and we're chatting as usual about medical device manufacturing, medical device packaging. Well, if you were listening into the last podcast, and I hope you were, we spoke with Dr. Carol Barnum about the user connection, user experience, user interface, and even uh, touched down a little bit on the customer experience. What the process looks like. It's very interesting, and we're going to dive deeper on part two here. Here's what we're going to do. We're just going to jump right in where we left off on our last conversation. Let's listen in. One thing that device makers are trying to do is to create IFUs that you can fit on a business card. When you talk about training, how also are, I mean, obviously for most devices, certainly for packaging, it's impractical to have in-servicing, onboarding for the individuals, the 100,000 individuals that are going to open up that sterile barrier system. So IFUs, at least in the case of packaging, have to be condensed, easy to understand. Is the goal when you're developing this as far as the feedback loop to your client to provide data that helps to truncate that into a smaller, more usable IFU? Is this IFU development focused on during this process? If the IFU is relevant, it is definitely focused on. And FDA wants to know that the user could find what they needed in the IFU, could use the IFU, even if they're not inclined to do it. But in the case of circulating nurses, they're not looking at an IFU. There's not even one made available in these studies to be able to open the package and present it to the surgeon because they that's what they do all day. Mm-hmm. So it's not about the IFU, but it is about the labeling. So labeling is mm-hmm. a very important part okay. of the interface. And it's what we get feedback from the circulating nurses about. Like, I want a place on the carton that shows which end I should open, number one. Mm -hmm. Because they all want to use scissors and cut the tape and product. We just recently tested. The reason why you thought I was in California is because I was in L.A. week before last week testing. (laughs) But I'm actually in Atlanta. That's where I live. But the product had a pull tab. And there was really very positive response from the circulating nurses about the fact that there was a pull tab because it told them which end of the box they should open, number one. But then when they got to the to the tray and the cover on the tray, they wanted to know which way they should peel it back. So they wanted a clear indication of that. This particular product they were supposed to turn out, it, it came out of the box, up, quote unquote, upside down. And they were supposed to turn the product over and dump it into the sterile field, which several of them were very unhappy about and didn't want to do for fear that it would fall off the table, become unsterile, and so forth. But they wanted a label on the package that basically said, turn over. So these are the recommendations we're going to be making to the client later this week. So these kinds of labeling 
are sort of in place of the IFU to help people in the context of the moment be able to understand how to engage with the interface. In our industry, we've recently upgraded labeling to have simple to understand icons in terms of sterility. One of the things, as you're speaking here, I wonder, a friend of mine and I were talking about when we do these these sort of user panels, obviously it's clear that we want somebody that's working in that industry that does this daily to be able to interact with our device or a product or a packaging for them to compare it against similar packages as sort of a proficiency test. But is there a value in bringing in agnostic, nascent users that don't even understand the process just so you can get some baseline data of what the product or packaging is? Is there any value in that at all? Well, I would say no, because it's not a likely use case. So if you're talking about circulating nurses opening the packaging and presenting it, they would have to be trained. They would never get into an operating room without already having all of that background Mm. and training. So there wouldn't be a new user case. There could be a young, inexperienced user. So it's always Mm -hmm. very good to get a variety of years of experience. So let's say you want, I mean, you can set this however you want, but let's say you want a minimum of one year up to 25 years of experience, but you want to make sure that you get the full range so that you've got some very junior people. And if you really wanted to know, you could say somebody right out of nursing school, you know, like fresh, you know, with less than one year experience, if mm-hmm. you can try to get that. But I would say it's not a realistic case okay. to assume that, that someone has no prior knowledge. That, makes that would sense. be true for a consumer product, but not, yeah. not for medical. Well, you know, when we look at just crazy things that happen in industry, I mean, in consumer products, there's been a lot of litigation about perceived misuse. So the company didn't imagine how the device may have been misused and they were litigated against and and lost. So you wonder, obviously, you, you have to make sure that you bracket any potential users that would be in that scenario. But, you know, it's hard to understand. We're in an industry where if I get a tattoo, I don't have one yet, it's going to be a worst case scenario because it's everywhere in our industry. So, you know, worst case scenarios are very helpful because they are the training wheels, the brackets, the firewalls that protect us from doing things that may harm our company or patients or anywhere in the uh, supply chain. So those are valuable. And I guess that's why, again, my sort of cynical mind comes in here of how we may understand. We had a case, I've I've told this story so many times in this podcast, but when I was in the microsurgical device development innovation game back in the 80s and early 90s, we had a uh, thermoform tray that held a five millimeter surgical knife. And during the presentation of the device, when they bent back that somewhat flexible polycarbon, and I guess it was a tray, they actually launch the device across the surgical suite. And we'd had that happen several times. We'd already mm-hmm. gone through all the studies with 510, everything was approved. So sometimes we find this in the secondary tertiary end of the process time where it's, uh, it's problematic. So when we're trying to understand, is there such a thing as sort of a pre-usability study before a company invests a lot of money to be able to say, hey, let's, you know, let's pass the laugh test here. Let's do maybe a quick overview to make sure that all your ducks in a row before we launch this expensive study. Is there a first glance sort of an opportunity? Yes, and I'm really glad you asked that. So, Charlie, that goes back to that five-user video of mine that you looked at. 
So the most enlightened companies, in my view, do this pre-research. And there's a word for it. It's called formative studies. Mm. So what's required for FDA is what is called summative studies. And that means that the product is done. It simulates the actual product that would go into, into use. So everything like the IFU and the, and the packaging and all the rest of that it has to be as close to what it's going to be in production as you can get it. But you can back up from that in one of two ways. One is to do very small formative studies where you don't have the product fully developed yet, but you're really interested in learning about the user experience and what the potential issues would be in time to be able to make changes based on what you may learn. So this study where I was in L.A. last week, this was a formative study. We recruited seven nurses and hope to get five. As it turned out in this particular case, all seven nurses showed up. So we took all seven of them in their individual sessions with the packaging without any of it wasn't the right box that it was going to be in in the end. It wasn't the final packaging, but the company wanted to learn what things were easy and what things were difficult and whether the nurses felt that it was safe to use as is or whether the team should continued to work on the design before they went into production. Then there was a focus group that evening with materials managers. And again, the boxes didn't have the labels or anything like that, but it was a session to learn from the materials manager's perspective. Hmm. What are your needs? What's your current situation for this storage and retrieval of this particular product? Would this device and this packaging be acceptable to you? What would you want to see? Things like color to differentiate different French sizes and just things like that that came out of it. That's formative testing. And when you do formative testing, a couple things happen. One is you can use small numbers because there's no requirement that you do it. FDA doesn't care, Mm -hmm. but they like to know because that becomes part of what's called an iterative design process, which is a fancy word that means that you repeat it. Mm -hmm. So you learn from the research that you did, and then you change your design on the basis of the recommendations that come out of that early research, and maybe even you test again. So the next place that you might test, and you don't have to do all of this, but the next place is called pre-summative. And so some of my clients know that that's a really cost-effective way to Invest in a smaller number of users, again, four or five participants per user group as opposed to 15, and you go through what you think is going to be your final test protocol with your with as close to finished product as you can, and you learn from that through an informal analysis and report. Oh, we need to fix the IFU, we need to change the labeling, those kinds of things um, before you go into full summative human factors validation testing. So yes, formative early studies are a terrific idea. And that could really get at the user experience because in formative studies, me as the moderator, I can engage with the participant all the way through. Tell me what you're thinking. What are you doing now? How does that feel to you? Whereas in summative studies, I have to tell the circulating nurse, pretend I'm not in the room. Okay, makes sense. I'm not going to talk. You can ask me a question, but I may not be able to answer it. So it's really disengaging and just observing and taking notes, where it's mm-hmm. informative, you can really dig in and find out what's going on. You know, maybe it's because I'm an owner of two empirical and calibration laboratories that I'm always hunting for biases. When you're doing these studies, do you have to separate these humanoids and these sort of nodes of uh, 
connection with the device. So there's always a kind of a group fallacy where if you have three or four people in the room, the same one person may mention something like, yeah, that's right. You know, and it sort of builds a story that wouldn't have been developed by that individual. Do you have to sort of uh, segment each one of these particular human nodes and that connection by other participants not being in the same room at the same time? How does that work? Right. So I think the biggest misconception that people have when they like they contact me and they say, you know, we want to do a usability study is that they equate it with the focus group. And a usability study is the exact opposite of a focus group. It is one on one. Okay. So it's one moderator, one participant. That's it. So you don't do it in groups. Okay. So focus group is in groups, obviously, and there is always that potential of groupthink and those kinds of things. But I did do that focus group I mentioned when I was in L.A. with the materials managers. But the way we even avoided having them all say, yeah, that's what I think, that's what I think, is that we created a worksheet for the questions that we asked them. And before they spoke as a group, they had to complete the information on the worksheet so that we were able to collect individual responses and then discuss them as a group. Okay, that makes sense. So there are ways around it, but focus group is absolutely the last tool in my toolkit. I almost mm. never use it because it's a market research tool and right. I'm doing, I'm not asking you, what do you think you would do? I'm basically saying, show me how you mm. do. That's a very important distinction. Thank you for clearing right. up. That's, that's well said. We're talking about the human connection. It's everything on medical devices. We can't escape the human interaction between the medical devices and the packaging. We talk about, in the Kilmer group that I'm involved in, one of the groups talks about the last, I think it's the last 100 yards, last 50 yards, where that device has made it to. Kind of thing, yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's where the brown truck drops the stuff off at the, the care center, effectively. And so do you also look at factors like when that is brought into the facility, it's going through receiving. We know that a lot of issues happen when they're stuffing a medical device into a bin and the distal tip of a surgical device breaks through the sterile barrier system or something terrible like that. Is that another thing, another study that you're performing to see how that behavior happens off the back of that big brown truck or where does your process just end? Is it only in the surgical theater? Yes. It's not that we couldn't ride along, which I think would be so interesting, like you talking about the EMTs, you know, putting it in their mouth. Mm -hmm. That's a different tool in the UX research tool. And I've done this for, not for medical products, but for commercial products uh, that are used by consumers. And that's called contextual inquiry, contextual inquiry. And what that means is engaging in a research study inquiry in the context of use. So if it's not in the surgical field, if it's from the point that the product is loaded into the back of the ambulance and then the ambulance driver is on his or her way, that would be contextual inquiry. I'd ride along, I'd see what they do. I mean, and that's fantastic research. I just haven't had the opportunity. There's a new, there's a new, well, see, there's a new project for you, Carol. I'm here to serve you, give you good idea. There's a new part of your consulting company right there. Well, it just seems right. like that's so so integral to the safe delivery of a device that someone's opening up a medical sterile barrier system in surgery and all that, they're opening it correctly, all that is happening right, and we know that it, how it comes out of the device, the containment system is great, but if that was damaged upstream, and perhaps there's a lot more opportunities for failure upstream 
of that more controlled surgical suite, in my opinion. It just, the handling, as you go through the hierarchy of employees, they're obviously the people who are receiving it in and putting those spin may be far less trained than somebody who is an RN or a clinician. And so they're looking at it from a very different optic and being able to st- understand how they look at it. It's putting product in a container or something in a shelf or a bin where the surgical nurse will look at it very differently. This is something that's going into a human body or it's going to be in contact with a human body and they have a very different vista. So it seems like the value to the process would be upstream of that. Is the, What's the FDA's optic on that? I mean, they don't address it. I would say that the way that a medical manufacturer or a supplier would end up knowing that there was a problem is through the sorts of complaints, the files, the logs, I've forgotten the official name for them, that FDA has of issues with the predicate product. Mm -hmm. And so the first question that FDA says is, how does your device, if it has a predicate product by you or another manufacturer, how does your device address the known issues? So if there were a record, internal or external, of known issues, that would at least alert companies that there's a piece of this process that is causing problems that they haven't considered and mm-hmm. need to and need to understand. And that's where the contextual inquiry, it's also called ethnographic research because you're in the field, <laughs> you're doing mm. like an anthropologist, yeah. uh, where they might need to know, well, why is the thing arriving unsterile? Or why are these patients getting infections or sepsis or whatever? And they would have to find that out. Right. So, but no, FDA doesn't address it directly in terms of human factors. Mm. Yeah, it's testing. interesting. Because Unfortunately, yeah. It seems like it should be to me, you know, I mean, that's I, everything in my laboratory when I'm a certified internal auditor for 17025 and when I'm doing my internal audits each year for my laboratories, I'm looking at failure points, obviously. And so Mm -hmm. those failure points are places where you may not look the most obvious spots, but those are the ones that, you know, we have a graph that shows, you know, how often may it occur and to what extent is there a problem or what is the risk to the process really And, you know, to me, sometimes we're looking in this very narrow band of failure only to realize that there's a lot of little spotty problems upstream of that delivery part. And that's where it's at in the case of, for instance, in our calibration lab, we're looking at that meter, making sure that we have traceable certification for that calibration, that thermal calibrator from a credited calibration a laboratory, mm-hmm. but we may miss the temp sensor, the test lead. Is it dry well calibrated? And if so, has there been proficiency testing to make sure that it is calibrated against another known device? And so there's so many of these scattered points of failure that they have to be understood. And obviously, you know, they have to be weighed based on risk to the process. And so we're constantly, we have a thing in our laboratory. We actually won an award in our laboratory for a what we call a risk watch program where technicians can Mm-hmm. easily complain about a problem or immediately stop a process, pull the stop lever if you like. If they see anything that's risk to the process and we take it a little bit further, we're in the packaging machine business in a calibration company, but we don't look at there's a risk because the machine may be at a calibration. We go far beyond that. We're looking risk to patient optics now. If that mm-hmm. machine is mm-hmm. at a calibration, it's not creating a, a solid seal. Now the sterility could be lost. So I'm sure in your universe, trying to weigh 
and understand and perhaps earth some risks that others may not have seen or I'm, I'm sure there's some prizes that come to you sometimes about where there's a risk mm-hmm. to the process where and in fact i'm sure that's a bias that you have to keep a very open mind and not assume what that risk is going to be or where that failure is going to be but let it unfold and find out really where those risks to processes lie Yeah, no, you make some good points. I can think of a couple of things in my world that are not directly relevant to packaging, but might give you an example of how we bring in other user groups. So there was a cardiac monitoring device that we did a study for a medical manufacturer, and and they sent a query to FDA to ask them whether the technicians, this was for home use, so it was prescribed by a doctor, and it was either given to the patient in the doctor's office or mailed to the patient in their home. And then when the, when the patient had used it for two weeks to send these readings to the doctor, it was then mailed back to the manufacturer. So when it got back to the manufacturer, FDA said, well, you need to do human factors validation testing of how the product is received back to the company and then what the technician does to service that device so that it can then be sent out to a new patient. Mm. And so we had to go on site where these technicians were in Texas and set up our usability study there and then have those technicians go through the checklist that had been created for them to make sure you do all these 20 things when the thing comes in and before it's ready to go back out again. And that was a piece that hadn't originally been planned to be included in that study. Mm. Well, what does the final report look like? What's the? Do you consider this a validated process at this point? And what is that validation? What is the customer sort of package at the end of all of this? Yeah. So FDA is very clear in its guideline, and the guideline came out in 2006. Am I saying that? 2016 called Applying Human Factors and Usability Engineering to Medical Devices, Guidance for Industry and Food and Drug Administration Staff. And this guidance was produced in 2016. And before that, it was sort of like a field day. I mean, people Mm. didn't know how many participants or what they needed to do, but this is very prescriptive. And in the end, they have an appendix, several appendices, that give examples of how to write the report. And one of them, Appendix A, lists the eight sections of this report, which we only do number eight, which is the human factors validation testing report. Mm -hmm. That's our piece in this one through eight parts. Now, a lot of the information in one through seven comes from what they learned in the human factors validation study, but we don't write that. Mm -hmm. We may assist the client, but they write that. And I've been told, and sometimes I get to see these final packages, I mean, they can run a thousand pages. Wow. (laughs) Our report, depending upon the complexity of the product, but our report, including the appendices with the detailed findings, is usually between 100 and 200 pages. Mm. I mean, that's yeah. that's as big as a packaging validation. You know, we're one of the things that we're <laughs> yeah. trying to do is... There's the acronym now, TLDR, too long, didn't yes, read. Yes, yeah, TLDR, yeah. exactly. So, you know, I think when I, as an auditor, myself, an internal auditor, and watching our auditors this year for our two surveillances for our laboratory, I could see that TLDR 
too long to yeah, DR look on their face as you're going through. And so, you know, one of the things that I've tried to do is to truncate the data the best I can and try to pull the giveaways. But we know that on regulatory bodies, the language needs to be there. What's required needs to be there. I think my biggest criticism, I think for some of the medical device manufacturers is they don't know when to say when they really sort of talk an auditor in and out of their process because they just keep on going ad nauseum. So I think it's important to be able to, I like your 100 plus 100, 200 page uh, summary far better than the 1,000 page one. I think that's <laughs> easier to interpret right. because somebody has to look at this document at one point and exactly. it, it can't be better. Well, the, the auditors, the readers of the Section 8, which is what we write, they like TLDR too. So mm-hmm. I've changed over the years how I write these reports. I used to put all the details findings in the report itself. And now what we do, what we do is we go to summary tables of the mm-hmm. findings with the count, how many passed and failed on each one of these critical risks tasks, and what are some sample comments that they made to support that for the analysis. And then we do appendices. Mm-hmm. So FDA can choose how deeply they want to delve into it. So the report itself is probably now more like 50 pages. Oh, <laughs> and then yeah. the appendices are everything else. So, yes, that's TLDR. Yeah, I mean, we even in our calibration lab, we have to manage, and for our empirical lab, we have to manage the highly inquisitive engineer that just wants that anally retentive humanoid that wants to see every grain of the data that we produced. Then we have the other ones that are like, give me the summary. I spent a lot of time with cliff notes in college, so... I'm kind of on the cliff note side myself, but what we finally realized is not only were we taking down a complete forest out of Washington every time we printed our calibration Mm -hmm. report, it was 300 pages, but sustainability aside, it became very hard to interpret. And so we developed a histogram, some sort of a visual tool where you could see the performance Mm -hmm. of their study and then a summary. And then if they wanted to go deeper we could provide them a digital copy spreadsheet so they could see each one of the data collection points. And I think that's how we addressed it. And it's funny because it kind of goes back to the whole thing that we began this conversation with is that unpacking of a product to take it out and to have it unfold before you and to have the user determine how much of that data they need. So I think reporting is one of the least talked about aspects and for validation of medical devices, validation for packaging, because we've seen some very good studies conducted, great validations that were performed, and either they were evanescent and just not touchable, or they just went on ad nauseum and they really sort of missed the point by being far too girthy. And I'm sure that's a dance that you have to play as well to be able to provide the data that's needed without having people using bookmarks and going to bed and reading it like a long novel in order to get the data they paid for. Yeah. No, I agree. And I think probably the reader being FDA, they know which sections are most important to them. So you have to put in the background and the methodology and the scope and all the rest of that. But once they have that, then they can just dive into what are the top findings. And if they need further support, they can go to an appendix. But FDA said, has told us in a recent seminar I attended, don't make me jump all over this report to try to find what I need mm-hmm. because you're making my job harder. Yeah. So it's a balancing act, you mm-hmm. know. Yeah, good point. I mean, it's just, I remember when I was in one of my English classes in college, they basically said the algorithm for writing a story is tell them what you're going to tell them, tell them what you told them. Remember that? Told just, them, right. Yeah. <laughs> so sometimes we have to frame what we've learned and then tell the body of the story and then have sort of an epilogue 
that just sort of encapsulate, Mm -hmm. here's what we found out, here's what we already told you. And if you would like to find out the facts of how we came to this, the data's there for you to check. But we notice on our documents that on our quality manual where you can go through and and we'll, when we do our internal audit, here's how we comply to 17025 and you'll find out our methodology or protocol or our process SOP by going here. And so they can use that more as a um, mm-hmm. directive to take them to the body of that long. I mean, we, I posted on Facebook the other day after my audit, and we have it's about 11 inches on a three ring binder is our quality manual. So my goal is to go the other direction and try to reduce that into this new sort of manual minification process to get that thing down to something that's more usable. Well, you know, a lot of our listeners, all of our listeners, I should say, are medical device manufacturers. Many are in um, trials with the device. Uh, We have packaging engineers. So someone starting this journey, this human connection to their device, both for the regulatory requirement as well as just the better understanding of how their product will be delivered into the uh, sterile field. Can you give us some closing advice on what they should do and how they could connect with you also in, in terms of the service your company provides as well? Well, if they're starting in the beginning, then I would recommend a small study to get some samples from your target users so that you can understand them, understand what their needs and requirements are, and learn by observing. And those can be done internally. I mean, if you have somebody that can do that in an unbiased way, there's no requirement that it be external. But of course, if you if you want a methodology that you can trust and that you know is based on standard methodology, then you want to go to an external agency like UX firms. So we are a small boutique consultancy based out of Atlanta, but we go everywhere in the world as needed to do our studies. And I guess I would say that you can go to a great big company where they have really big staff and lots of turnover, or you can pick a small company that involves the principal and senior UX researchers. And so, you know, you're always getting highly skilled people working on your project. But you don't need that. You can begin on your own. And I used to be a professor of usability testing (laughs) at an engineering school. And I would say to my students, if you work for a company that doesn't have a group that does usability testing, then just do it. Just go do it. And then just, you know, do a lunch and learn and share your results. And you'll start to get, build some enthusiasm for understanding the user experience. Awesome. One final question, Carol. How soon should they start thinking of the medical device development sort of curve? How soon as you're developing that device? I mean, obviously, first and foremost, is it an efficacious device? What is it valued to the patient? Is it something that meets the 510K approval process? Where do they jump in when they start thinking about this? I know there's a lot of problems where people are coming into the secondary and tertiary part of development with with packaging validation. And what they found on medical device packaging, like they'll buy the machines from us in the uh, sort of 11th hour, not realizing that the packaging validation is going to take some time and it's going to sort of stunt their launch date. And they're surprised to find out how girthy the 11607 and the uh, conforming to that process. So many have told me over time that they wish they would have got into packaging much earlier. I think the engineers in the know are buying their packaging machine a year out and starting the validation process of that equipment, the IQ, OQ, PQ stuff. So they're not just stacking these requirements. If they can do these sort of in concert with the other one, co-producing these other requirements, then obviously it gives them a much prettier launch date. So when should we jump in with this? 
Well, I think a lot of times I hear from prospective clients who are in a panic and basically mm-hmm. say, how quickly can we do this? And then they're sort of shocked, you know, that it's right. going to take eight, ten weeks from start to finish. The better planners are those who reach out to research companies in support of the regulatory requirements like UX Firm and others, where they say, well, we know we're going to need to do this and we are targeting our packaging being available in a simulated use that isn't the actual final packaging, but you know what, we could create five boxes of this to be reused or 15 of these to be used in individual Mm -hmm. sessions. We can create that in advance before we go into full production. And it is at that point that we can start to target dates for when we can put users in front of us. You have to have a viable product at least as close to viable as it's going to look. So if it has an IFU, the IFU has to look pretty darn close to what the final is going to be, but you mm-hmm. might make changes to it afterwards. If, it's, if the box has labeling and that sort of thing, if it's a certain size, if it's, if it's made out of a certain gauge of cardboard, you have to have some samples of that. Mm-hmm. that you can work with in order to be doing human factors validation testing. Yeah, and the other end of that, sure, you don't want to jump the gun and really not have enough uh, data points to be able to create the intel right. you're after. Right, and that you can't make the case to FDA that it was a production equivalent. Yeah. So that's one of the requirements. Makes yeah. sense, yeah. We were able to use some dummy products in the uh, packaging development, but for sure the form factor should be uh, 90% there. Well, Carol, Mm -hmm. this has been such a joy to chat with you, and I always like to put people on the spot so they can't tell me no, but I'd love to have you back on the (laughs) podcast so we can continue. Would you agree to jump back on me again? This has been, we're supposed to go a half hour. We're well over an hour. We're going to do this over two episodes because it's such an important story. So love to have you back. You're such a bright woman. I've just really enjoyed, I've learned so much in this conversation. So thank you for agreeing to do it. Not only agreeing to do it, I called you yesterday and you said, what the heck, (laughs) call me. I love that. We're in an age now where I have to go to people's person. They send me a link to their calendar and they push me out six months ahead. And by the time the <laughs> podcast comes up, I'm, I forgot it or I'm, I'm on vacation. You know, so it's so great when people can uh, jump in and launch. And I know you're very busy. It's not because you're not busy, but you're very flexible. And I really appreciate that. So Carol, it's been a joy. Thanks for hanging out with me and chatting about this today. Likewise. Thanks so much, Charlie. Have a great day. The company is UX Firm. We've been speaking with Dr. Carol Barnum. If you'd like to get a hold of Carol, you can reach out on her email, which is simply Carol Barnum at UX Firm. Or if you're one of those old people like me that still picks up telephones and calls other humanoids, you can call them at 404-680-0329. Sure, she'd love to chat. What a great organization to help you connect your device with users. Well, medical device manufacturers and medical device packaging engineers... Thank you once again for listening in to Spot Radio. Thank you for spreading the word about our little podcast. It continues to grow each month. So thank you for all your continued support. This is Charlie Webb, and we look forward to chatting with you next time on Sterile Packaging on Track Radio, Spot Radio. This podcast is made possible by Vanderstahl Scientific. Executive producer, Lisa Wasper. Director of Media Service, Hector Garcia. Audio engineering and editing by Joel and our friends at East Coast Studios. And this is Jonathan Lockwood saying thanks for your support, medical device manufacturers. See you next time on Spot Radio. Spot Radio.